Good morning. The scripture reading for this morning is Philippians 1, 27 through 2, 11, and it may be found on page 980 of your pew Bibles. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Philippians 1, 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is God's word. Keep your Bibles open to Philippians chapter 1, and let's pray together as we look at God's word. Lord, what a privilege it is to be able to hear your voice whenever your word is open. Lord, may we not waste that privilege. May we have eager ears to hear what your spirit is saying through your word. Would you give us ears to hear you and eyes to see you? And Lord, would you be at work reshaping, refashioning our hearts, making us more and more like you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most obvious uh, realities of the human experience is that we were made for community. We were designed to share life together with other people. There's a deep longing and desire that's kind of hardwired into us, every one of us, to know and to be known, to love and to be loved, to know that we're not alone in this world, 
that others get us, that they understand us, that they accept us, that they have our backs, to have someone that we can share our burdens or our joys with, someone to call and celebrate with when we have good news, someone to cry with when our hearts are broken. We were made for community. And at the heart of every community is some common bond, some common bond that unites us and holds us together. So you think of the mortar in a brick wall or, or the wire that, that takes a pile of grass and turns it into a bale of hay. There's some bond that brings us together and holds us together, some, uh, something that we have in common that we share. In fact, the, the word community comes from that idea of holding something in common. Could be a common bloodline. Your family is a kind of community that you're born into. Or a common zip code. Your neighbors form a kind of community together. A common employer, a common ethnic heritage, a common interest or hobby, common ideas or values, common social or political concerns. In our desire for meaningful, real, deep relationships, we form communities around all sorts of different bonds. And whether a community is deep and meaningful or shallow and fragile, all depends on the quality or strength of whatever bond is holding you together. The quality or strength of that mortar, that wire, You may like your neighbors a lot, but if all you share with them is a common zip code, then as soon as one of you moves, that relationship is over. I think of our former neighbors in Natick and in Hudson. The only ones that we still keep up with are those with whom we shared some bond deeper than just living on the same street. Or you think of uh, something as seemingly deeply shared as a common bloodline. Your family can be some of the richest experience of community that you can have. It can also be some of the most toxic. Or it can just simply be neutral. It's not unhealthy, but you're just not that close. And so zip code alone or genetic code alone, those make for shallow and fragile communities, if that's all you have. And so what is it that makes the church a community? What is it that makes the church a community? What is the bond that unites us and holds us together as one? How does that bond make us different from any other community in the world? How strong is it? How does it affect us? How deep and meaningful, how life-giving and loving, how enduring and resilient should we expect and aim for our community to be as a church? Those are the questions I want to think about this morning as we continue our series walking through our core commitments, the core commitments of our vision as a church. We want to see Christ treasured above all things throughout Metro West Boston in every corner of the world. We want to see uh, Christ glorified by helping others 
see him for who he truly is in his beauty and majesty and sufficiency so that they might worship him and rest and find their satisfaction in him. Uh, That's our, our desire, to see Christ magnified, to see people satisfied in his glory. And so what strategies are we leaning on or investing in for that vision to become a reality? We've been talking about some of those different strategies, and the one we're looking at this morning is Christ-centered community. Not just community, but Christ-centered community. And to understand, to help us understand what that looks like and what's at stake in cultivating that kind of community, we're looking at Paul's letter to the Philippians. So Philippians is one of the, one of the several letters that Paul wrote from a prison cell of some sort. Uh, we don't know if it was in Ephesus or Rome, uh, but we know that he was imprisoned for preaching the gospel of Jesus. And we know that that didn't stop the church in Philippi from continuing to partner with him in the gospel's advance. Paul opens his letter thanking them for their ongoing partnership. Even though he's here in prison, he thanks them for their fellowship with him in the gospel, assuring them that it has not been in vain. But then he reminds them that this partnership they have together in the gospel is more than just their prayers and their financial giving, as crucial as that is. They too are called to live as citizens worthy of the gospel, to engage in the very same conflict that Paul's engaged in. And that's his central exhortation in the book, our passage before us, 127 to 211. And in these verses, Paul sketches a picture of what Christ-centered community looks like. And he starts with the call to Christ-centered community in 127 and 28. And then comes the cost of that community in 128 to 30, followed by the character of Christ-centered community in 2, 1 through 4, and then finally the pattern or model for that community, which is Jesus himself in 2, 5 through 11. So, so the call, the cost, the character, and the pattern. I ran out of C's, and so just get three, and then there's... Uh, but that's where we're going, and we're starting with the call in chapter 1, verse 27. So look there with me. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. So you you hear Paul's opening call there, and you can hear the language of unity and community right in there, the commonality in those verses. One spirit, one mind, striving side by side. Paul's calling the church to operate as a community. But what is the bond that holds the church together? What is it that we share in common with one another that actually makes us into a community? Well, one of the challenging realities in the church in North America uh, today is the temptation to build our community around uh, all sorts of things other than Jesus. It's a huge temptation. In fact, that's not just a temptation. That was the bedrock of several 
church growth strategies over the last several decades. Building communities around common interests or common life stages or common problems or common musical tastes or common ethnicities, you know, people naturally gravitate towards others who are like them. And so the strategy uh, was that to leverage that natural impulse for the sake of growing the church. And so we're going to be a church for millennials, or we're going to be a church for young people, young marrieds with children, or we're going to be a church for busy people who can't make it on Sunday mornings, or a church for uh, those who like traditional worship music, or a church for those who like contemporary worship music, or a church for those who like cowboy uh, worship music. And, and you've got this whole, and it, and it becomes kind of this market share strategy. In its worst forms, we'll be a church for white people, or we'll be a church for rich people. We, we've, there's a temptation to try and build community with other people who are just like me, whatever the like me is. And that happens not just at a congregational level. It often happens within the church among the little communities that make up one congregation. So we build community uh, based on common life stages or common hobbies or common situations. So we'll have groups for singles, groups for young marrieds, groups for retirees, groups for youth, Groups for people who like to run. Groups for people who like board games and so on. And here's the deal. That has its place. That has its place. It's helpful, for instance, for 20s and 30s to have a chance to get to know one another and, and, and build relationships because there is a common life stage with common problems and opportunities and they can... It can be helpful to work together on that. It can be very helpful for single moms to be able to connect, to share their trials, to share their struggles, to help resource one another. So it's not, it's not a bad thing. There's nothing wrong with finding uh, and creating that kind of mutual support around different life stages or interests. But here's the question we must ask. Would this community exist even if the gospel weren't true? Would this community exist, even if the gospel weren't true? If the answer is yes, that's not sinful or wrong, but it's not the church. That's not the kind of community God calls us to. Paul calls us to a christ centered community where the bond of christ is what brings us together and holds us together and if this kind of community can exist and flourish without jesus that's fine but that's not what paul's talking about that's not what he's talking about he wants to call us to a community anchored in united around and worthy of the gospel of christ think about the community that Christ gave his life to create. So in his life in ministry, think about how Jesus broke through the natural bonds, the natural barriers that existed. Uh, he went above natural bonds that, might, that people might find community together. 
He went over top and through all of those to bring together in himself a people who would otherwise likely never have had anything to do with each other. I mean, you think you get, you get a, a tax collector and a zealot on the same team among the disciples. I mean, that just, that's not supposed to work. Um, but he, he broke through those barriers. He ignored those natural bonds. He became the mortar that unites us, the wire that binds us together. And it's our union in him that makes us one. So listen how Paul describes it in Ephesians chapter 2. And he's speaking here specifically of Jew and Gentile. For Jesus himself is our peace, who made us both, Jew and Gentile, one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So what makes the church unique, meaningful, life-giving, and lasting as a community, it's not our common interests. It's not our age or our ethnicity or our financial status or our stage of life or any other natural bond. What unites us is the supernatural bond that we have in Jesus. As Mark Dever writes, when Christians unite around something other than the gospel, they create community that would likely exist even if God didn't. But he continues, through the gospel, our identity no longer stems from our families of origin, our professions, our interests or ambitions, but the fact that we are in Christ. We are Christians. God calls us to a Christ-centered community. And only when our community is centered on Christ will we live and love each other in such a way that Christ is treasured above all things rather than my passions, my interests, my hobbies, and so on. Now, again, this isn't to say we should avoid natural bonds. It's not the point. Uh, of course not. Uh, they have their place. They can be very helpful. And we, we do form communities along some of those lines. It's to say that we shouldn't settle for only natural bonds. We should cultivate among ourselves the kind of community that wouldn't exist unless the gospel's true. The kind of relationships that the world doesn't have a category for. I mean, it was strange uh, in Paul's day for Jews and Gentiles to consider themselves family. The world didn't have a category for that. So what would happen? What would happen if the world were to look in on the church and see people who would otherwise be divided? People with different economic statuses, different colored skin, different educational backgrounds, different political parties. People who aren't supposed to like each other, according to the world. Not just liking each other, but loving each other as family. 
As Dever again writes, so often we aim at nothing more than community built on similarity. We need to aim at community categorized, characterized by relationships that are obviously supernatural, that are built around and held together by the bond we share in Jesus. And even among those relationships that we have that are kind of brought together by natural bonds of some sort, uh, life stage, interests, hobbies, whatever, we need to aim higher than just relating over that natural bond. Uh, Because think about what happens. If my primary bond with someone is our common taste in music, then the strength and durability of that bond is only as strong as whatever instruments Drew chooses to use on Sunday morning. If that's what brings us together, we like the same kind of worship music, that's a weak and fragile bond, right? If, um, so, so if our primary bond is, is a shared life stage, again, that's a good and proper thing. But what happens when one of our situation changes? We were really close friends in the singles group, and now you're getting married. I don't know how to relate to you anymore. It can happen. If that's our primary bond, our life stage, it's only as strong as continuing in that life stage. Moreover, where do people who don't fit that life stage fit into the church? How will you learn from somebody who's not just like you? if that's the only way or the primary way we build our community. So our bond must be in Jesus. Our bond must be in Christ. So here's another question to ask. Is what draws me to this community, the bond I share with others over some common interest or or situation, or is what draws me to this community, what sustains me in this community, and what nourishes me In this community, the bond that we share in Jesus. That's the kind of community God calls us to create. And it should be true whether we have natural bonds or not. Christ is our bond. Christ-centered community. But not only do we share a common Savior and a common King, we also share a common mission in Christ. And with that mission comes a cost. That's what... Paul talks about next in verses 28 through 30, the cost of our Christ-centered community. Notice how the unity that Paul calls the church to in the end of chapter 1 here is not focused simply on just getting along within the church. That's not his main or primary application for community here. Rather, it's on persevering together in a common cause of the gospel's advance, even in the face of opposition. Striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That's what this community is doing. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a, a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that, you, that for the sake of Christ... You should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now here I still have. So too often we separate community or fellowship from outreach or evangelism. 
Uh, we draw kind of a big wall between those communities. What we do when we hang out, outreach is what we do when we go away or something like that. Uh, the reality is, though, that they are distinct, but they're inseparable. They are distinct, but they're inseparable. It is as a community that we bear witness to the gospel of Christ. And we'll talk more about that next week. In fact, the word uh, that's often translated fellowship in the New Testament, uh, the word koinonia, we sometimes say, uh, that's the word Paul uses to describe his partnership with the Philippian church. It's a fellowship in the gospel, but also for the gospel's advance. And with our common Lord and our common mission comes a common opposition to that message in this fallen world. The declaration that Jesus Christ is the true king of the universe who deserves all allegiance and all faith and before whom we have all fallen short and are therefore under his just condemnation, but that he loved us and and came to... um, bear our sins on the cross and deliver us from sin and uh, unite us with him through faith, that message of Christ's sovereignty and our sinfulness and his sufficiency as a savior, that message attracts some people and repels other people. To the point that Paul writes about that message from prison. Some people didn't want to hear it and didn't want anybody else to hear it. It it can create conflict uh, to the point that some of you will be abandoned by friends and relatives, people you thought you could trust. You thought that bond was unbreakable, and then all of a sudden it lets you down. Some of you will be overlooked for jobs or or lose relatives, be accused of of all sorts of wicked things simply because of your allegiance to Christ. We are engaged in a conflict because not everybody wants what Jesus has to offer. There's a cost to the Christ-centered community that God envisions. And, And if we're honest, that pressure that can come with that, it can at times make it feel like the bond that we have in Christ is about to break. The strain that we feel from this outside pressure, this tension, the temptation to give in or to check out, especially when we forget that this conflict is actually part of the call. Remember what Paul says to them. It has been graciously granted to you not only to believe in Christ, but also to suffer for his sake. It's part of the plan, sharing in the sufferings of Christ. And so, so we have a, a, a common, we, we have a, a common bond in Christ. We have a common cost to that community. What will it take, therefore, to stay united as a church in both our relationship and our mission and to nurture that commonality and persevere in our cause? That's the next thing Paul talks about in terms of the character of Christ-centered communities. You come to chapter 2. So notice in verse 2, look at verse 2 with me, how Paul reiterates his call to unity with language that mirrors what he just said a minute ago in chapter 1, verse 27. 
complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Paul makes a big deal of operating as a unified people. Four different ways of describing this kind of unity that's essential. But, but what motivates that unity and what does it actually look like? He reminds them in verse 1 what motivates it. That the motivation to, to live as a united community doesn't come from some intellectual fact or, or some mere command. It comes, rather, from our experience of community with God himself. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, and the implication here is that all of those things are true. So since you've experienced loving community in your relationship with God through the gospel, then complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord in one mind. It's our experience of community with God that motivates our unity with one another. But what does that look like lived out? Well, that's what Paul explains in verses 3 to 4. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. So what does it take This is a big call. What does it take to nurture that kind of unity, that kind of common bond? That we might stay united and that we might persevere in our mission. Paul's answer here, it takes humility. It takes love. It takes sacrifice. And it takes considering someone else more significant than yourself. Notice, however, so that's the positive way of putting it, right? Love, humility, sacrifice. But notice what that kind of character is then set over against. He he gives us a contrast. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. Let each of you look not only to his own interests. So it's not enough just to say, what are we actually called to? Humility and so on. What do we also have to guard against? If we're going to preserve our community in Christ, we need to know what we're called to and what we have to guard against. Because there is a constant enemy lurking within the people of God, threatening at every turn to disrupt our unity, to weaken our bond, to to try and actually replace that bond with something else. There's a constant threat toward our community in Christ. And it's not the hostile world around us. That's not the biggest threat to community. The biggest threat to community in the church is me. It's self. I'm the biggest threat. Each of us, as we put self first. Think about what happens to community when you put yourself first. My agenda my desires, my preferences, my glory, when, when rivalry and selfish ambition actually overtake our relationships or when we consider ourselves more significant than anybody else, what happens to community when self comes first? 
Will we replace love with self-interest? Sacrifice with self-protection? Humility with prideful indifference? Our interactions become marked by competition and insecurity. Always trying to figure out where I'm at with you and what level of threat you pose to my agenda. Our conversations get filtered through a lens of suspicion. So you can't just have a conversation or ask a question. There's always this, okay, what's the veiled angle behind that? Suspicion. And so we're always, therefore, on our guard. We're always on the defense. And some of us have learned that the best defense is a good offense. And so anybody who poses a threat to my agenda, to my desires, to my glory, I make it my goal to subtly but surely tear them down. Quick to point out the flaws of others, but slow to accept my own error or extend forgiveness. Because that would mean dying to self. That would mean dying to the very thing that's most important to me. Self is like a slow drip of acid on the mortar of the bond we have in Christ. You might not notice it at first, but over time it slowly wears everything away. The character of Christ-centered community is humility, love, sacrifice, considering others more significant than yourselves. And that's really hard to do. That is not our default mode. But it is the mind that we've been given in Christ. And that's Paul's final point in our passage, the pattern of Christ-centered community, which is Jesus himself. How do we know what this looks like? How do we know what a Christ-centered community looks like, what real humility is, what it looks like to consider someone better than yourselves? Look at Jesus. That's Paul's answer. And he does so with this great hymn in verses 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. So think about that. Jesus shares God's eternal glory. But he didn't consider his equality with God something to be grasped at, something to be exploited for his own selfish gain. He had every right to leverage that little fact about himself. But he didn't. He did nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but made himself nothing taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus demonstrates his greatness and glory, not by promoting himself or protecting himself, but by humbling himself and dying. Most shameful and excruciating death imaginable in his day, death on a Roman cross. He didn't seize at his own glory. Rather, he entrusted that to the hands of his Father, who, because Jesus' 
because of Jesus' selfless love, the Father highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is our pattern for humility, for sacrifice, for self-giving love that treats others as more important than yourself. He is our pattern. When I'm tempted to stake my ground, to to, uh, prioritize my reputation, my way, Paul says, look at the cross. Look at the cross. But you know, Jesus is more than the pattern for this. He's also actually the power. His power that frees us to actually live out our bond in Christ. Paul goes on and says later in chapter 3, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. So Jesus isn't just the pattern for what it looks like to guard unity. He's also the very power. Treasuring Christ above all things is not just the goal of community. It's the power because, and here it is, when I'm satisfied in Jesus... When I really treasure him above all things, including myself, there's no room left for self in the equation. If I'm truly, genuinely, thoroughly satisfied in Christ, my heart's so full of him that I can't find a corner to wedge my own agenda back into. It frees me. To finally do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but actually in humility consider others better than myself. Because there's no room left for self when Christ is my satisfaction. I'm free to love you and to think more highly of you and your ideas and your desires than my ideas and my desires, even if no one ever acknowledges them. I'm free to love you even if I've never loved in return. Because I have all that I need in Christ. I don't have to find that affirmation from you. I have it from Jesus. I'm free to share your burdens without fear of what it's going to cost me. I'm free to think the best of you rather than operate out of suspicion or competition. I'm free to acknowledge when I'm wrong, when I've hurt you. I don't have to defend my reputation. I'm free to forgive, to forego my desire for retribution because I'm filled with the affections of Christ for you. Treasuring Christ as a community frees us to actually live according to that bond, to get myself out of the way. It doesn't mean we will never have conflict. It doesn't mean we'll never hurt each other. If you been around Westgate long enough, you know that's true. We are still sinners. We still make mistakes. We still hurt each other. 
But what it means is that we have the resources to deal with conflict and redeem broken relationships because Christ is a bond more powerful than anything else in this world. And in a community that treasures Christ, we're even free to suffer for the sake of our witness, to be taken advantage of by those who oppose our mission, our message. Because even if we do lose our reputation or lose a job or lose a friend, even if we were to lose our lives for the sake of our witness, we know that in the economy of the gospel, we have actually lost nothing. Because Jesus is everything and no one can take that away. That's the hope of our brothers and sisters in Texas. That's the hope we have as well. Paul says it this way in 121. For to me, to live is Christ. That's my whole agenda in life, Christ. And to die is gain. Because it means more Christ. I'm with him. He wins. That's the kind of community that lasts. That's the kind of community where we know we're not alone. The kind of community that causes the world to sit up and take notice. One that is able to extend beyond natural bonds and break down natural barriers, demonstrating the transforming power of the gospel and the supreme worthiness of Jesus, even in the face of opposition. A community that wouldn't exist and couldn't function if the gospel of Jesus wasn't true. That's what we're called to. And so if what binds us together is anything other than Jesus, our experience of community will slowly erode through confusion and competition and disappointment. When Christ is the true center of our community, our path is clear and our bond is secure. Because self is removed and Christ is all. And so may we rally around Christ, our common Savior and King. He is worthy. Let's pray. Lord, you have called us to something impossible. You have called us to something we are incapable of cultivating or creating in and of ourselves. And we confess that for that reason, we are so often tempted to take the easy road, to build our relationships solely on the basis of similarity rather than on the basis of Christ. But Lord, you are so much more worthy than that You envision so much more for your people. And so would we find our supreme and lasting bond, not in what this world can give us to to come together around, but only in your Son, who has purchased us and made us one through the cross. Lord, would that be true among us? Would we love one another in such a way that we are so eager to die to ourselves 
out of love for our brother or sister. And we do pray that the world would take notice. Not because we're perfect, not because we've figured it out and we have it all together, but because we have a Savior who's able to bring us together despite our imperfections, despite our sin, despite our selfishness, and able to bring a beautiful redemption out of it. Lord, may that be our witness. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.